Welcome to the Man of God Network. The Man of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan, a presence on sermon audio for Puritan and Reformed audiobook recordings. For more recordings, go to sermonaudio.com and do a search at the narrated Puritan. In our last couple of podcasts, we had been talking about the persecution of our Baptist forefathers in colonial Massachusetts. And though I think that the subject matter today is going to be a little bit different, because we're going to look at the foundation of the First Baptist Church of 1665 in Massachusetts, because it's so interrelated to the persecution that was still going on. It's really part three of the persecution of our particular Baptists in Massachusetts. So I wanted to make known this book I'd mentioned last week called The Price of Soul Liberty and Who Paid It, Henry Clayton Fish, which came out in the 1850s, but is still on sale for $3.99 from this site. The site is website.revivalit, one word, .org, website.revivalit.org. But I'm continuing a reading of the history of the First Baptist Church in Boston, 1665, published in 1899. And we left off with this paragraph. For nearly 10 years, meetings of those who held Baptist doctrines had been maintained in private houses in Charleston and Boston. These meetings were strictly forbidden, but nevertheless were regularly held. The law was not strenuously enforced, probably because these assemblies had not yet passed on into an organized church. A meeting held in Thomas Gould's house on Sunday, November 8, 1663, at which were present Gould and his wife, Osborne and his wife, and others, seemed to have been especially obnoxious to the authorities both in church and state, and called forth immediate and vigorous action. But even yet extreme severity was not used. Amazing inquisition into their assemblies and accompanying threats were the deterrent means employed. It is not known why so long the delay occurred in the final organization of the church. But in June 1665, such an organization was finally perfected, probably in the house of Thomas Gould, and proceeded to exercise all the functions of an orderly church and especially to observe the ordinances. It was a time of mingled hope and fear, as you might suppose. It required no small faith and courage to expect success in these perilous ventures. There were a little band, and the whole colony was hostile against them. They could scarcely hope to remain unobserved, even though they were few, because already they had repeatedly fallen under the public disfavor of the court. To perfect an independent church organization was, therefore, the extreme of daring and the last step of open rupture with the standing order. Now, this is a side note, but going on back in England during this time, if there were two Puritans who were fighting for the Baptist freedom in America, in a way was uh, uh, two men who were of the Savoy crew, John Owen and Jeremiah Burroughs. In fact, if you know the history of John Owen, he almost came to America, but at the last moment he stayed in England, but he was very favorable to the Baptists in that 
he thought persecution of these Baptists was not scriptural, that people should have freedom and liberty of worship. But I go on to the reference before me. Thomas Osborne and his wife were received into the Charleston Church on the 10th day, 7th month, 1644, and again on the 23rd day, 12th month, 1661, the last time upon letters of dismission from the Malden Church. They speedily became familiar with the discipline of Thomas Gould, and their attention was arrested by the clear grounds of Scripture upon which he stood. They themselves soon became leavened with principles of Anabaptism, end quote, and absented themselves when the ordinance of infant baptism was administered. It was only a few months after their last admission to membership in the church that they were admonished for holding the same views as Gould. Henceforth, Gould and Osborne were close associates in doctrinal fellowship and devotion to their convictions and in their sufferings. Osborne was a citizen of property and of good standing in the community, and like Gould, was a man of an exceedingly resolute spirit which persecutions could not daunt. Oppositions could not turn him from his chosen path. Edward Drinker was a potter by trade and carried on an extensive business in the colony in pottery wares. In 1652, he was appointed a constable of Charleston. His house was a frequent rendezvous of Baptists and those who sympathized with them. He rendered very signal service to the colony at a time when it was greatly imperiled. He was often in prison because of his Baptist views. John George was a chimney cleaner, little is known of him. He died in September 12, 1666, a little more than a year after the church was organized, and hence escaped the worst of the persecutions. He was indeed both fined and banished, but his early death gave him release from the power of an earthly court. Both Drinker and George had been many years in the colony, but had never before connected themselves with any church. Drinker in later years won applause as an officer of a troop, largely recruited among the outlawed Baptists, which went to defend the colony in an exceedingly critical time against an attack of the Indians. His commanding officer and captain of the company was William Turner, also a Baptist, whose name appears sixth on our list. Captain Turner laid down his life for the colony at the fierce and decisive battle which took place in Deerfield in the Connecticut Valley in 1676. Richard Goodall was the shipmaster and commanded a catch or freightening boat or freighter which ran between Boston and New Haven. He had been a member of William Kiffin's church back in London, he appears to have settled in Newbury as early as 1638 and to have finally made his home in Salisbury in 1639 and 40. William Turner and Robert Lambert had been members of Mr. Stead's Baptist Church in Dartmouth, England. Two women only united in this early church fellowship, Mary Goodall, wife of Richard, and Mistress Mary Newell, both of whom had been Baptists in Old England and seemed to have well considered the fierce trial into which they were entering when they put their names on the roll of the new church. The little group of baptized believers, nine in number, seven men and two women, the two Marys, met in the house of Thomas Gould for their organization. They were not the only Baptists of whom we have knowledge in Boston and vicinity at this time. 
But they are the immortal group who had the courage to declare by this formal organization their deathless convictions and their readiness to endure whatever such declaration might bring upon them. Is it too much to believe that the spirit of the sainted ex-president of Harvard, Henry Dunster, met with them and rejoiced in the planting of views for which he had suffered so much? It is worthy of notice that 22, 14 men and 8 women, Others united with the church prior to 1671, and while the storm of persecution was most pitiless, they were courageous souls who obeyed God rather than men. It is not known who baptized Gould, Osborne, Drinker, and George. It is possible that the Reverend John Miles, a Baptist minister from Wales, who had located in Swansea, Massachusetts, and gathered about him a Baptist church, might have been present. We know that he often visited Boston and preached for the church, and that some years later he might have become their pastor if he had been willing to listen to their overtures. Dr. John Clark, pastor at Newport, Rhode Island, who at one time had been a resident of Boston, may have been present. He was widely known as a Baptist minister, for he had been in prison in Boston in 1651 for preaching and baptizing in Lynn, Massachusetts. The after-connection of this church with the Newport Church was close and continuous. Thomas Olney, pastor in Providence, had formerly lived in Salem and could not have been ignorant of what was passing on in Boston. All is conjecture, for no definite information has come down to us. It would have been entirely in keeping with their well-known views of the right of individual liberty to prophesy if one of their own number who was already Baptist had been chosen to administer the ordinance to those who had not been immersed. In this regard, they would have followed the well-known example of Roger Williams at Providence, with the difference that some of their number had been members of Baptist churches in Old England, although none of them were ordained ministers. The question has been raised whether dipping in water was a form of baptism used at the organization of this church. The same question has been raised in regard to the form of the baptism of Mr. Roger Williams at Providence, Rhode Island, and also in regard to the usage among Baptists in Old England prior to 1642. It is certain that Gould and Osborne were rebaptized, for they had been both members of the Charleston Church. It is certain that all who had been previously members of Pado Baptist churches were rebaptized into this church. Thomas Foster, whose name appears 20th on our list, was one of the founders and leading members of the church in Ballerica. He became a Baptist and was most severely reproached because he was rebaptized when he united with this church. This is regarded as especially a reproach cast upon the Ballerica church from which he was excommunicated. The rebaptism always insisted on as a prerequisite to membership in this church, and it was peculiar irritating to the Puritan churches. This fact would not, however, be wholly decisive in regard to the mode of baptism. The first record of this church used the word baptize, which is, of course, open to three meanings according to long English usage. In 1640, Charles Chauncey, later the second president of Harvard College, settled for a time at Plymouth and afterwards Skituate. Before his installation at Plymouth, he discovered his judgment about baptism that the children ought to be dipped and not sprinkled, 
there arose much trouble about it. From the journals of John Winthrop. In Scituit, he persevered in his opinion, although the church had refuted his doctrine and dipped two of his own children. His views made a great stir and were considered a great encouragement to the schismatical, quote, Anabaptists, who, however, never baptized children by any mode. Afterward, he accepted the presidency of Harvard College at the price of silence concerning his views. The promulgation of such heretical views and scituate and a following which they undoubtedly gained for themselves would be sufficient explanation of the retirement of ex-president Dunster to that place when he was deposed from Harvard College in 1654. In 1651, when John Clark was apprehended and cast into the Boston jail, he put forth as one of the views of the Baptists and as the thesis which he desired to discuss with the ministers of Boston, the following. I testify that baptism or dipping in water is one of the commandments of this Lord Jesus Christ. That is one that manifests faith in Jesus Christ as the only person that is to be baptized or dipped with that visible baptism or dipping of Jesus Christ in water, end quote. This would seem to be sufficiently explicit, but Clark goes on further to say, although there be frequent mention made of that appointment of Christ in his last will and testament, yet it is never expressed by the word that may be rendered rantism or sprinkling, but by the word that is rendered baptism or dipping. John Clark, Narrative, pages 50 and 52. This is the mode of baptism practice in Newport and Lynn. Clark was the most representative Baptist of that time and assuredly expressed a received Baptist view of the mode of baptism which Baptists practiced. John Clark and the Newport Church were in fellowship with the Providence Church and in close fellowship with the church in Boston without dissent when it was organized in 1665. Quote, but these wicked sectarians deny this sacrament and compel their adherents to renounce their baptism and to be dipped again in their profane waters, end quote. This is an enemy statement of the usual mode of baptism among Baptists. It is evident, therefore, that baptism among Baptists meant the immersion of a believer and never any other mode. There is no record of any change of usage in this church from its foundation to the present time. Well, if there had been such a change, either friends or enemies would have been quick to point it out. It's an interesting circumstance that the first two presidents of Harvard College, who were among the most learned and distinguished men in the Puritan colony, would have been infected with the heresy of Anabaptism, end quote. In a simple way, did these men and women organize this first Baptist church, which became the steadfast forerunner and a final obtainer of religious liberty in this commonwealth of Massachusetts. During the first five years of its history, the church never numbered more than 18 members, every one of whom was a peaceful and industrious citizen. The wife of only one of the original members came into the fellowship of the church. Thomas Gould's second wife, Mary, who did not unite with the church until about 1670, was certainly in sympathy with her husband as her vigorous protest and appeal to the authorities in 1668 when he was in prison, abundantly show. The wife of Thomas Osborne, who was also in sympathy with her husband, as her records of discipline of the Charleston Church testify, 
We do not know why they did not become members of the church unless because their husbands dissuaded them through dread of the storm of persecution, which was certain to follow. For 18 years, such storm raged around this devoted little man as might well make husbands wish to protect their families and spare them from its fury. The power of the general court and of the Puritan ministers, with some noble exceptions, was put forth to crush him or banish him from the colony. They were obliged to meet sometimes in Charleston, sometimes in Boston, sometimes on Noddles Island, now East Boston, in the harbor, but always in private houses and under the most watchful surveillance. There is an interesting entry in the records of the Roxbury Church in the handwriting of John Elliot, the apostle to the Indians and pastor of the church, quote, July, August, 1665. The Anabaptists gathered into a church, prophesied one by one, and some amongst them administered the Lord's Supper after he was regularly excommunicated by the church at Charleston. They also set up a lecture at Drinker's House once a fortnight. They were admonished by the court of a sister and so on. The church was organized June 7, 1665, and on August 20th, Richard Russell issued a warrant to the constable of Charleston requiring him in his majesty's name to labor to discover where these people assembled and to require them to attend the established worship. If they refused, they were to have their names and places of residence returned to the nearest magistrate. They were discovered. They refused to give up their own meetings and were consequently brought before the Court of Assistance in the seventh month, September, where they exhibited their Confession of Faith, which has remained unaltered at the received Confession of Faith of this church to this day. This Confession of Faith, which we would probably in our day call a church constitution, is notable for its simplicity, comprehensiveness, and biblicalness, but it did not please the court which charged the Baptists, quote, to desist from their schismatical practices, end quote. The Baptists, who were as stubborn as a court and continued to meet as the Church of Christ, when the general court met the next month, October 11th, they ordered to appear to them, Gould, Osborne, Drinker, Turner, and George, who laid before them the same confession of faith which they had presented before the court of assistance, his closing confession and plea, were of no avail with the court. As the following statement and action of the court shows, at the sessions of the general court at Boston on the 11th of October, 1665, where as the last court of assistance, Thomas Gold and his company, sundry of them, were openly convicted of schismatically rending from the communion of the churches here and setting up a public meeting in opposition to the ordinances of Christ here publicly exercised and were solemnly charged not to persist in their pernicious practices. Yet this notwithstanding, as this court is informed, they do still persist in contemning the authority established. It is therefore ordered that the aforesaid gold and company be summoned before this court to give an account of such of their regular practices, together with their celebrating the Lord's Supper by an excommunicate person. A warrant was issued out accordingly. The party appeared. After a due hearing what they had to say, the court proceeded, whereas Thomas Gold, William Turner, Edward Drinker, 
Thomas Osborne and John George, being summoned before the last court of assistance held at Boston in September the last, were legally convicted of schismatical opposition to the churches of Christ here settled, and of profaning the holy appointments of Christ and in special the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper by administering the same to persons under censor of an approved church among us and presuming as a covert of these their irreligious and pernicious practices do declare themselves to be a church of Christ. On consideration whereof the court solemnly admonished the said persons of their great evil in attempting with so high a hand to pollute and profane God's holy ordinances, they being not only private but also some of them excommunicated persons that have intermeddled in the administration of these ordinances that are proper only to office trust. And also the said court solemnly charged them that for the future they desist from such their meeting and irreligious practices as they would answer the contrary at their peril. And whereas Thomas Gold and company were summoned before this court and their own acknowledgments stand convicted of non-observation and submission to the above said sentence and charge of the court of assistance, professing their resolution Yet further, to proceed in such their irregular practices, thereby as well contemning the authority and laws here established for the maintaining of godliness and honesty, as continuing in the profanation of God's holy ordinances. This court, taking the premises into their serious consideration, do judge me to declare that the said Golden Company are no orderly church assembly, and that they stand justly convicted of high presumption against the Lord and his holy appointments, is also the peace of the government against which this court doth account themselves bound to God, to his truth and his churches here planted, to bear their testimony, and do therefore sentence the said gold, Osborne, Drinker, Turner, and George, such of them as are freemen to be disfranchised and all of them upon conviction before any one magistrate or court of their further proceeding herein to be committed to prison, until the general court shall take further order with them, and so on. But they still continued to meet together in their own church fellowship, and steadily absented themselves from the established worship. So on April 17, 1666, they were presented by the grand jury to the county court at Cambridge for absenting themselves from worship. They declared in answer that they were a public meeting according to the order of Christ Jesus gathered together. Thomas Osborne answered that, quote, The reason of his non-attendance was that the Lord has discovered to him from his word and spirit of truth that the society wherewith he is now in communion is more agreeable to the word of God, asserted that they were a church and attended the worship of God together, and he judged themselves bound so to do, the ground whereof, he said, he gave in to the general court. Thomas Gould answered that as for coming to public worship, they met in public worship according to the rule of Christ, the grounds whereof they had given to the court of assistance, asserted that they were a public meeting according to the order of Christ Jesus gathered together. John George answered that he did attend the public meetings on the Lord's Day where he was a member asserted that they were a church according to the order of Christ and the gospel, and with them he walked and held communion in the public worship of God on the Lord's days, end quote. From the History of Massachusetts, Volume 3, pages 400 and 401. 
And also, you may want to look at Isaac Backus's History of the Baptist Churches in America, Volume 1, page 299. The court declared that their attendance on worship was not in a lawful way, and Gould, Osborne, and George were each fined four pounds, therefore, and ordered to bind themselves in a bond of 20 pounds apiece for their appearance at the next court of assistance. They refused to pay the fine and were committed to prison. The court of assistance met and sentenced them to pay their fines and costs of the court and said that if they would do this, they should be set at liberty, but added that the order of court of October of 1665, referring to said schismatical assembly, shall be and hereby is declared to be in full force. It is not known how soon they were released from prison, but on October 24, 1666, warrants were put into the hands of the Charleston constables to obtain the name of such, quote, Anabaptists, as you shall find met together. During the summer, they met sometimes in Charleston and sometimes on Nodles Island in East Boston. Henry Shrimpton, a member of the First Church in Boston, a man of property and honorable standing, evidently did not sympathize with the persecutions of the Baptists. The court had no penalties for men and women who did not attend upon public worship at all, and who wholly ignored the public teachings of religion. To this extent, religion and its exercises was voluntary in the colony. But if any man or company of men chose to observe religious exercises, they were permitted to do it only in the way established by the Puritan churches. There was no penalty for being non-religious, but there were penalties for being religious in any other way than the congregational way. The high prolactical notions of the Puritan church made it peculiarly grievous that a man who had not been ordained by them should baptize and administer the Lord's Supper. These functions belonged only to the office trust, and it was gross sacrilege to exercise them out of the regular and authorized way. The high church ideas of the Puritans concerning the ordinances were little less prolactical than those of the Roman church. Their ideas concerning a religious theocracy were even more strict than those of the Roman church, in quote. Well, a couple of things I want to say in passing that at least I observe from this, and uh, it's interesting in light of the fact that I had taught on the Salem witch trials and Cotton Mather and so on, that obviously if you think this through, if the government was headed by Baptists, there would have been no Salem witch trials. There wouldn't have been the type of government that would have been set up that uh, they would have been persecuting these people the way that they did. Not that witchcraft isn't, of course, serious, but the Baptists wouldn't have applied the death penalty to it. But the second thing that I think about as I observe what we are talking about here is you wonder why so many people, Puritans and so on, adhered to the practice of infant baptism. It's probably the same indiscreet zeal and lack of knowledge that you see in their practicing of government of the state. And my argument from that would be that it is no more proof that pedal baptism is correct because the Puritans in longstanding practiced it then it would be correct to say that the discipline of these Baptists was correct when we can clearly see that it was a reproach upon the application of the first four commandments of the moral law of God. Well, thank you for tuning in 
This is a Man of God podcast. For more church history lessons, please go to sermonaudio.com and do a search for The Narrated Puritan. Mm-hmm.